say good morning to you and welcome to Hebron to our worship service. We're going to commence by singing paraphrase 25. How few receive with cordial faith the tidings which we bring. How few have seen the arm revealed of heaven's eternal King. Let's all stand to sing. Before we pray, we'll read our psalm for today, which is Psalm 57. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee, 
Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Selah, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the, into the midst whereof they have fallen themselves, Selah. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Let us all pray. Lord, as we would come to the house of God today, to this worship service, to meet with your people, and most of all, to meet with our God, we would say immediately in the words of the final verse that we've read from this psalm, Be thou exalted, O God. We pray that the Lord will be far above all. How we praise thee for a God who sits upon the throne of eternal glory, one who is sovereign and supreme one who reigns in the affairs of heaven and earth, one who is in absolute control of all things that happens in this world. We thank you that though we look around in this world and we see, humanly speaking, things out of control, it is not so with God. And he will perform his purpose in the earth, and his will shall be done on earth. And Lord, we pray that your will will be done in our lives. You have brought us to this time of worship to seek the Lord, to meet with your people that we might have fellowship the one with the other. And Lord, you've called us to your house. You've told us in your word that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And Lord, here we are at your command in obedience to your truth. And we believe God is here to bless us. Oh, let the tide of blessing rise. Let the Spirit of God descend upon this people. Let this be a hallowed hour indeed as we meet with the God of glory. May we know your presence. May we sense it and feel it in our hearts. May your voice be heard throughout in every line that we sing, in every scripture that we read, and in the proclamation of your word. Oh, that the voice of the Almighty will be discerned in our hearts. We say with young Samuel of old, Speak, Lord, for thy servants heareth. We remember those, as we have prayed already today in the early season of prayer, who are sick and laid aside, who need the special touch of the Lord. Many of them 
belonging to our families, many of them, Lord, belonging to this church. Lord, remember them for good and be near to their bed of sickness and make their bed of sickness as the Scripture speaks about. And may the overwhelming sense of the presence of Christ be their portion. Remember all who serve the Lord today. We thank you for those that you've raised from this church that have gone out to be ambassadors for the Lord. We think of John Hanna, though retired, still serving the Lord in Spain. We think of Noreen and Armin and young Josh and Bangor and Alejandro in Spain. And Lord, we pray that you will bless them in their particular ministries that you've given to them. Pray for our students that your blessing will be upon them also. Think of Jonathan and his future and all that is before him, decisions that need to be made, this call that he has received. Lord, we pray that you will direct his way. We remember David as he prepares for Africa to go to the land of Uganda and Rachel too and the family. Lord, be their portion in these days of preparation. For Greg as he finishes his final year and continues to serve the Lord at the martyrs and here in Balamone. Bless his ministry also. Or to Panker, be with him. Young Kirsty as she studies and Chris too as they seek to study to show themselves approved unto God. And we pray that you'll remember those who have served in this congregation as student assistants. We thank you for David Brown and Simon Anderson and for where the Lord has placed them today be their portion. We thank you for souls that have been saved. Lord, we've been rejoicing in what the Lord has done. Thou hast been so gracious in these days and our hearts have been warmed as we have listened to reports of those who have sought the Lord and not least the little boy in Sunday school this morning. We pray that you will bless him and bless the family that he comes from. And Lord, we thank you for this token for good and may many, many more be added to the church. Thank you for the safe return of Erwin and Stephen as they've spent this week, this past week over in Kenya and bless what they have done and the seed of the word that they have sown. Lord, we thank you for the little baby born into the church family, for little Joah, bless him, we pray. And so meet with your people here. Come and abide with us now. Make yourself known for Jesus' sake. Amen. Courage, brother, do not stumble. 555, let's sing it to the glory of God today, and we're standing to sing. Let's all rise to our feet.
suppose the great consolation there was that the, the tune was uh, easy to get on to. I should have checked who knows the hymn beforehand. I think there was a little bit of hesitation at the start, but you get on to it. It's a good hymn. May the Lord help us to trust in God and do what's right. We bid you welcome again to the church today and to those that are joining us on the internet. <clears throat> welcome in the Lord's great name. The gospel meeting is tonight at seven, and we'll be preaching on <coughs> the subject double imputation. Don't let the title put you off. It's a great text that we're coming to tonight, great gospel text, and a great encouragement to God's people too. The prayer time is 6.30. Supper will be served, refreshments, and ladies, can you please bring something so that we time can take place, time of fellowship the one with the other. There will be a children's workers' meeting after the service tonight, so remember that as the Youth Challenge gets underway again this term, we, we need to meet with you tonight after the meeting. <clears throat> In the morning, the Hebron Tots will take place at 10 o'clock through to 12, and tomorrow evening there's a school management committee meeting at 8 p.m. Remember the school's ministry this week. In the will of God, tomorrow we will be in Kararea. Uh, Christina, in the afternoon, just after lunch, will be in the high school. <coughs> Wednesday, Greg will be back in the high school. So there's the, the juniors and the seniors of the high school, both this week, Monday and Wednesday. And then on Friday, Christina will be in Gary Duff SU. Pray for them, please. Tuesday night uh, recommences the children's work, Youth Challenge at 7. And we hope that you will find a place where you can serve the Lord. Here's something that you can do. And if our members are interested in this, please do uh, come to the meeting tonight. That would be very good after the service. Wednesday night, there are <clears throat> at least one, maybe two pallets to pack for Romania. Things that have come in, money that has been provided to send them, at least one of them. So that will be at 7 o'clock Wednesday night. Thursday night is the midweek. At 8 o'clock, we'll be here to preach the Word, God willing, and special prayer for the Christian school this Thursday. Friday night is the Youth Fellowship at 8 o'clock, a good start on Friday past, and it was lovely to see the young people there, and others will join, no doubt, as the, the weeks progress. It's also Presbytery in Mulliglass Free Church for the elders of our congregation. Saturday morning is the open air at 11 o'clock in the center of the town. Next Lord's Day, the prayer meeting, 8 o'clock, Sunday school, 10.30. Bible class, quarter to 11, and Mervyn will be taking the subject over the next little while, all of grace, good guidance for godly living. And this is a study in James, and he will begin with James the man and the message. Worship service at 12 noon. The family night at seven, Dr. Nigel Campbell will come to testify, and the title of his testimony is Pictures of Grace in the Life of a Christian Doctor. If you have access to making the meeting known, uh, you can pick this up on Facebook or on our WhatsApp. Send it out to as many people as you can and invite them to come. Supper will be served after the meeting next Sunday night. In addition to the announcements that I've made on the 3rd of February, that's this Saturday, 
at 7.30 in Lurgan Free Church for any of our young people that might be able to go. There is a meeting there combating the cults, and so you're invited to that. That's 7.30 on Saturday night. Our next senior citizens meeting will be on Tuesday week, the 6th of February. The following night is the Ladies' Fellowship at 8 o'clock when Margaret Russell will come to speak and the Hebron ladies will sing. And then there's a, a work day on Saturday week, the 10th of February. We'll give you more details next week. And God willing, the next evening, Samuel Johnson will be ordained as an elder in the congregation here at the 7 o'clock meeting. Remember the Youth Council 50th anniversary on the 16th of February at the Martyrs Memorial at 8 o'clock. Now, the Mission Board are having special uh, meetings in Lisbon. It's a conference to focus on mission in action, and that will be from the 6th to the 8th of March. So we're giving you uh, due um, enlightenment about this. Each night will be 8 o'clock, so on the Wednesday night, Reverend Colin Mercer will speak on the priority of evangelism. On the Thursday night, the Reverend Brian McKee, the purpose of discipleship. On the Friday night, the Reverend David McMillan, the pattern of church planting. And there'll be video reports from our mission field. On the Saturday, the 9th at 8 o'clock, there'll be a special anniversary service to recognize the work of the mission board over the past 50 years. And the moderator, the Reverend Murray, will be the preacher. Could I announce this event so that you can get it into your diary? The Sabbath School Social will be on Friday the 15th of March. So that's a few weeks away, but it'll soon come about. But please put it into your diary. And then beyond that again, so that you can pray for the annual Bible conference, the 8th to the 12th of April, the Reverend Roger Higginson will come to minister the word. Can I congratulate my mother-in-law, uh, Mrs. Joan Gibson, who's with us this morning, celebrated a very significant birthday yesterday. So you just take a look at her and guess what age she is. And uh, if you get to that, you know that, I'll not tell you what age she is, but you know that we word octogenarian that you should have learned by now. Uh, so getting to this very significant moment in her life, we rejoice with her. From the older to probably the newest, the younger, we want to congratulate Andrew and Jessica on the birth of their baby boy. And uh, we learned just before the service today that Joa is the name. So we do rejoice with the family and all the relatives, the wider family circle. And we know that Ivor and Sylvia are delighted as well. And remember Ivor, for, he's away in Cumber tonight, uh, I'm going to say preaching the word, but he'll be giving his testimony there. And God willing, he'll be doing the same later on uh, here in Hebron for us at a family night. We ask you to pray for the sick of the church connected to us. Uh, Anne's story has been admitted into the hospital and would value your prayers at this time uh, as these others that we've mentioned to you. Erwin and Stephen, as we have mentioned, have returned from Kenya. They arrived home safely yesterday, feeling very well, very awake uh, this morning. I trust that the Lord will bless them. 
And then we continue to pray for the land of Ukraine, that the Lord will be gracious to that country, bring the war to an end, and the ministry of divine truth that's going out weekly, uh, faithfully, that it will be owned of God. We also pray for the Lord's own land, the land of Israel, that again war will cease and threat will disappear. We bring our tithes and our offerings to the Lord just now, and as we do so, we're going to sing 539. Today is home mission. Remember that, please. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Now, we're going to sit to sing stand, all right, just because the offering needs to be lifted at the start. So, think of the words, at least. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, and then we will stand eventually for the remainder of the hymn.
come again to our studies in Mark's Gospel. We read together the same passage last week. We just got to, to look at the opening part of the message, and we're going to read these 10 verses, Mark chapter 11. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your ways into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him, and many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for your precious word. We thank you for this amazing history. Just the, a short time before the Lord Jesus went to the cross, and as we glean upon this passage and study it together, again, open our minds and our hearts to your word. We pray for a wakeful spirit. We pray for a clear mind. We pray for an understanding heart. And Lord, we certainly pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be given to preacher and people alike for Jesus' sake. Amen. The occasion before us, as you know, is the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem, and it brings us to one of the most remarkable events in the life and the ministry of God's dear Son. The crowds lined the streets. They welcomed Him with open arms, waving the palm branches, casting them in the pathway as they cry, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the question that we're asking, and we began to ask last Lord's Day, is this, how did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? And we give you three ways last Lord's Day. He came into the city triumphantly. Here we see the crowds lining the highway into Jerusalem and the streets of the city, treating him as royalty, hailing him as king, casting their garments in the way, and, and waving the palm branches of victory, a truly marvelous and regal and majestic occasion. And then we said that he came into the city humbly, and this is seen in the fact that he rode upon this humble animal, not riding like other kings on horses or in chariots, but on a colt, a young donkey. 
We learned how that we ought to walk in this life with humility of heart, following the example of the Savior. We are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, Romans 12 and 3. We are to be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the pride and giveth grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5 and 5. And then we notice that he came into the city gloriously. There were several rays of Christ's glory shining forth in the midst of this humility. We noted that he knew the future. He showed his dominion in the fact that this beast that was untamed and unbroken was completely calm beneath the Lord. And then we finished with looking how the colt was from a place where the two ways met in verse 4. And we thought about sinners at the crossroads, and we thought about saints too being at a crucial place in their life where decisions needed to be made. So we're continuing with this. And as we think of how the Lord came to the city, we're looking for some kind of application to our hearts and lives too. So please listen and, and pray in your heart, Lord, speak to me now. I want to say in the fourth place that Jesus came courageously. Coming so publicly to Jerusalem demonstrated that Jesus was not afraid of the power and the malice of his enemies who were in that city. He didn't creep into the city as a coward, afraid to show his face. The Jewish authorities did not need to send out spies to discover where the Lord was. No, Jesus comes with observation so publicly and, of course, so courageously, knowing all that lay before him, how wicked hands would take him by force, mistreat him, spit upon him, beat him, drag him to Calvary's cross where they would crucify him. Jesus entered the city with great courage. My dear child of God, we're not facing this kind of persecution yet. We're not in immediate danger of being arrested or beaten or stoned or sawn asunder or slain with a sword as, as some men were. Remember when the apostle in Hebrews 11 listed all the great heroes of the faith, he went on to speak about those who would suffer in so many ways. It's unlikely that we will have to go to prison at this present time, or be martyred for our faith. Now, that is happening in persecuted countries where the people of God are suffering under various regimes. Yet we often lack courage. Despite the fact we're not facing this terrible danger, we lack courage. We're timid in our presentation of the gospel. We often are silent when we ought to speak up for the Lord. We want the easy life that is stress-free with no opposition or no ridicule, and consequently, we fear. And we shy away from our God-given responsibility to be a witness for Him. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation where you've been afraid, where you've been tongue-tied, maybe among some family members that are antagonistic to the gospel 
or some of your friends, especially those from the past who were worldly and maybe against the Lord and the gospel, or maybe at school, young people, or in your workplace if you have employment, have you found yourself in that position where you are afraid to take your stand for the Lord and own him? May the Lord help us to stand up, stand up for Jesus as we sang earlier as soldiers of the cross. May he help us to be counted as those who own him and defend his cause. Let us not be silent because of fear, of mockery, and scorn, and laughter, and opposition. I say to you all, stand up for the blessed Son of God as those who profess to know him as Savior. He came courageously. Following on from that, and very similar to it, he, he came into the city determinately. He came to Jerusalem with determination, setting his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. You know, that's <clears throat> what the prophet foretold. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7, hundreds of years before this event, setting your face like a flint is the figure of speech used by the prophet to describe the Savior's unwavering determination to persevere in the excruciating task that was set before him. On his journey to the cross to die for our sins, Jesus knew exactly what lay before him. And nearly 800 years before it happened, Isaiah foretold of the sufferings of the Lord's servant in Isaiah 50 and verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Rather, as we've mentioned in the very next verse, verse 7 of that prophecy, I set my face like a flint. Dr. Luke, in the New Testament, he re-echoes this resolute determination of Christ in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, Jesus would suffer and he would be crucified. He was not fearful and upset about his approaching sufferings. He knew all that lay before him and nothing was hidden from him. It was therefore with holy determination that Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the great hour that he had spoken about so much in his ministry. Jesus had come to die. He had come to suffer for our sins. He had come to be the once and for all time sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. He must therefore come to Jerusalem. This was the time appointed from all eternity in which Jesus Christ would be crucified. In two or three days, he would sit with his disciples in the upper room for the Passover and institute the Lord's Supper. He would say to these men, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. He would say, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
This cup is the New Testament of the New, uh, the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. And then they would hear him pray in John chapter 17, Father, the hour is come. Early in the morning, in the garden of Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He would be in an agony of prayer, greatly troubled in his soul as he contemplated the cup that he must drink. He would tell Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Judas would betray him. The mob would seize him. He would be dragged off to the palace of Caiaphas where Peter would deny him, and then off to Pilate for the unjust trial where he would be mocked, stripped, crowned with thorns, spat upon, and cruelly scourged. He is eventually pushed and shoved all the way to Calvary where he was spiked to the Roman cross and lifted up to die. Man had done his worst in all the cruelty that was poured upon the innocent Son of God. And then the rod of divine justice was lifted up upon Christ, and the sword of holy wrath against sin was plunged into him as he bore our sins in his own body at the tree. He knew it all, everything that was before him. Nothing was hidden from him, and yet he entered Jerusalem with all this in view, and he did so determinately, with holy resolve, steadfastness, and single-mindedness. I don't think that we would have had the same determination and resolve if we knew that we were going to suffer in that way. And yet, <clears throat> is it not true that over the centuries, many of the martyrs did courageously, determinately face suffering. After the apostolic period came a group of men that were known as the apostolic fathers. The best known of them was Hermas or Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. Ignatius became a martyr in the early part of the second century. For about 40 years, he was the bishop of the church at Antioch in Syria. An ancient but unprovable tradition asserts that he was the child that the Lord took into his arms in Matthew 18 and 2, saying, Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When Ignatius was an old man, the Roman emperor Trajan paid a visit to Antioch. And being told about the bishop of the despised and hated Christians, he, he wanted to meet him. Trajan said, there you are, wicked devil, deceiver of men. Ignatius replied, not an evil spirit, but I have Jesus Christ in my heart. Trajan said, Jesus Christ within you? Do you mean him who was crucified by Pontius Pilate? Ignatius said, yes, he was crucified for my sins. The heartless emperor immediately condemned him to be transferred to Rome to be thrown to the wild beast, butchered, 
to make a Roman holiday. Ignatius was brought to the amphitheater at Rome, later become becoming known as the Colosseum. It seated about 45,000 spectators. When Trajan had sentenced him, he replied, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast vouchsafed thus to honor me. When face to face with death, he said, I am God's grain to be between the teeth of the wild beasts so that I may become a holy loaf for the Lord. Soon after the lions were loosed upon him, there was nothing left but a few gnawed bones. When mourning friends later took these bones for burial, they knew that Ignatius was with Christ, which is far better. You know, I sometimes wonder how we would have reacted, how we would have faced such a trial of persecution and martyrdom. You see, Jesus set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing everything that was before him. I wonder, are we like him at all in this? Then I want you to notice, sixthly, that he came into the city cheerfully. This might seem a very strange thing, but it is so. Our dear Lord, coming to this city with full knowledge of all that lay before him, came cheerfully and joyfully to do his Father's will, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He came triumphantly. He came humbly. He came gloriously. He came courageously and determinately. And though there was sorrow in his heart and tears in his eyes, as we shall see in a few moments' time, we must note here that Jesus came cheerfully into the city of Jerusalem. He's coming there to die for sinners, to reconcile wicked, rebellious men to God, to bring many sons to glory. The great eternal purpose of God in Christ is now going to be fulfilled in its utmost extent. He had already lived for sinners as their representative for 33 years. Now he will die for sinners as their substitute, paying the price for sin at the cross, opened the gates of heaven to a great multitude that no man can number. You turn just for a moment to Hebrews chapter 12, and I've already quoted from this chapter, but notice chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, as I contemplate the cross, there are a number of words that come to my mind, as I'm sure if you think about Calvary, there are words that come to your mind. I think of suffering. Think of all the agony that the Lord Jesus went through when he was crucified there at Calvary. I think of the word substitution, because there at the cross, Jesus is taking my place and he's dying in my stead as my representative. I, I think of the word love. Greater love hath no man than this, as I think of a dying Savior. I think of the word forgiveness, because it's there at the cross that I obtain forgiveness for my sins when Jesus Christ bore them 
for me. I think of the word necessity. He must go there. He must die. This was the purpose of God. I think of the word wrath because the holy wrath of Almighty God was poured upon His Son. I think of the word sin because there at Calvary, sin is now being dealt with. I think of the word finished where Jesus accomplished all that was given Him to do. But you know, I have to admit, I don't think of the word joy as I stand in the shadow of the cross and I I watch Jesus die and yet we are told it was so. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? I am told that the idea behind the word joy is end or the finish. Just like a runner focuses on the finish line or the builder upon the completed project or the author who anticipates anticipates the last page of the book. So Jesus was looking forward to the joy of finishing. He came to accomplish eternal redemption for his people. He came to purchase eternal life for all who would believe in him. And there was a deep and overwhelming sense of joy in the Savior's mind and heart as he was contemplating the finish, the finish of all that he came to do. Someone penned the words when he was on the cross, I was in his mind. I'm certain that Jesus hung upon the cross, and as he hung upon the cross, he looked out across the eons of time, and he saw the masses of people who would be saved because of his agonizing death at Calvary. He saw you, and he saw me. And so as he rides into Jerusalem on the colt, he does so cheerfully. Now, we're not asked to go to the cross and die and suffer and finish such a work. That's already been done. Done once. Done for all time never to be repeated again, and so done by the only one who could do it. But there may be a cross to bear (coughs) for His name's sake, for the gospel's sake. We may have to suffer in some ways because we are Christians and desirous to see others brought to Christ. You might be rejected. You might be laughed at. You might be mocked. You might be shunned by the world. You might be disowned. You might be mistreated. These are not nice experiences. But you face whatever you have to face with joy, glad in your heart to suffer at all for the sake of Christ who suffered for you. And may you know something of joy even in suffering. Jesus did. He came into the city cheerfully. And then notice finally he came into the city tearfully. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke just for our final point where Luke elaborates a little bit upon what's happening here. And there's just one verse particularly that I want you to notice. It's verse 41. It's the same scene, the 
It's the same moment, descending down from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. And this is what Luke tells us in verse 41 of chapter 19 of his gospel. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. I finish by directing your attention to the tears of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we read about the man of sorrows who was acquainted with our grief in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. In the New Testament, we, we read about him sighing in Matthew 7 verse 34, and we also read about his soul being troubled in John 12, 27. But there's only three times in the New Testament that we read about his actual tears. And every reference is at the end of his ministry, not long before his death. First of all, at the grave of Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. Secondly, before us here in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, in the first case, they flow from the intense intensity of personal friendship. And that was the friendship that he had with Lazarus. In the second case, the tears flow from the intensity of, of passionate love for this city a people that the Lord loved, despite how they treated him. And the third case that is mentioned is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's mentioned later by the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Hebrew church in Hebrews 5 and verse 7. You remember how he described the Lord in Gethsemane? A man of strong crying and tears. It's the only three references of the tears of Christ in the New Testament. I hope, I've often thought about the scene here in Luke chapter 19, the crowds lining the streets, Christ riding in triumph, being proclaimed as the King and the promised one of God. And I've thought about the cheers, the applause, the esteem, the shouting, the crowd, and how the whole multitude, were told, of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. However, the Savior was not so much taken up by all this. His focus was on the lost souls of the city of Jerusalem. For when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. As he came near the city, he, he passed over the Mount of Olives, and from the mount there was a full and a magnificent view of the city. And as Jesus sees it, he thinks about the people that lived there. Jesus weeps, pours out his tears, over the city. Why did he weep? Because of the sad neglect of opportunity and the awful destruction that was coming to that city, both physically and eternally. 
This city rejected him, or very soon would reject him, because now they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But in a very short time, in the matter of days, they will be crying, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. This city was wicked and guilty before God. They deserved everything that was soon to come upon them, and yet Jesus wept. Jesus knew their sins, their crimes. He knew their disobedience, their rejection, and yet Jesus weeps. Jesus knew the multiple mercies of God shown towards this place and how they despised that love and that grace that God Almighty had shown, and yet Jesus weeps. Jesus knew that they were about to put him to death, their long-expected Messiah, and yet he weeps. He knew the awful destruction that would overtake this city in A.D. 70, and he weeps. His heart was deeply moved and affected. Oh, the compassion of Jesus, the precious tears that he wept on this occasion. I wish that we were more like him. I pray, God, give me the weeping eye. Grant me the tears of Jesus. Let me feel the lostness of men around me. We need the compassion of Christ. How dry our eyes are in prayer meetings, in private times of prayer, when we see the lost of our cities and our towns, our people round about us, how dry our eyes are. Souls are lost in sin. They're drifting downward to hell. And soon they will descend into the caverns of the damned where they will weep and wail for all eternity in the midst of that fiery inferno. How can we fail to weep? At such a thought. In Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Tarries, he says, you cannot have revival without Mr. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes sitting in the congregation. Do we have such among us today, Mr. or Mrs. Amen, or Mr. and Mrs. Wet Eyes? Will you pray for a heart full of compassion? for poor sinners? Will you ask God to melt your soul and give you the weeping eye like we have it exemplified in Jesus? Make me more like him. Give me a heart and a soul that, that feels for the doomed and the damned. I ask the Lord to give me love, his love for souls in sin. Instead, he gave me weeping eyes, a broken heart within. I asked him why he gave me tears. He took me back in time to when the Savior lived on earth, when he was in his prime. I saw him go to where his friend was lying in a grave. The sisters and their friends were grieved. What love to them he gave. You see, my Savior standing there was also grieved that day. He wept great heaving tears with sobs till those who saw could say, Behold, we see now how he loved. His tears revealed his heart. His love was evident through tears 
I saw God's point and part. And then he took me to the day the people hailed their king. When Jesus enters to their cheers, the children run and sing. But when he saw Jerusalem stretched out before his eyes, his soul was moved with grief for them. It moved his heart to cry. Oh, as I read those solemn words, I feel they are, that they are sweet. For in them I behold his love so perfect and complete. To one more place he took me now, at midnight I beheld. The Son of God bowed down with grief and deepest sorrow held. I heard him weeping strong and deep, but though it I discerned, but through it I discerned, he prayed for me, it melted me, his love for me I learned. With tearful joy I thank the Lord for answering my prayer, for giving me his love for souls, his tears, his heart, his care. Jesus entered into the city tearfully. May the Lord give us the weeping eye for those that are perishing in their sin. And through that weeping eye, it expresses the love that we have for those that are lost. Let us pray. Gracious God, we have gleaned through this passage during these weeks. We have noted how the Lord entered into the city of Jerusalem all those years ago. We've sought to draw to our hearts some kind of application in our day. May we not be negligent in our hearing. May we not, Lord, fail to apply what we've heard to our hearts. We just pray, make us more like the Savior. Help us to stand for Him. Help us to love Him. Help us to be like Him. In all, in all these ways, His humility, His courage, His triumph, and Lord, certainly His tears. Grant us the weeping eye, like the weeping prophet Jeremiah, whose tears ran down like rivers as he thought about the loss of the city and the doom and the destruction that was coming. Lord, we pray that you will break us and melt us. Lord, may we see a mighty work done for God in our day. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We conclude with 514. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Let's rise and sing.
would make our appeal to God's people that we might be more like Christ, that the Lord will speak to our hearts. We would plead with those who are not saved in this meeting to come to the Lord. We would plead with you earnestly. If you're not a Christian, seek him. Come to know him. Trust in him now with all your heart and know your sins forgiven. Almighty God, we further pray again that your word will have an, an impact upon our hearts, that Christ that we've looked at will have an influence. Speak to us, Lord. Don't let us be so hard-hearted that we don't hear from heaven. And Father, we pray for any who do not know Christ. We would plead with them earnestly. We would plead with them tenderly that they might be saved. Bring them to Christ today. Thank thee that the Lord is saving and there are people trusting in him. Hallelujah. But so many are still strangers to your grace. Lord, may this be the day when they find the Lord. Dismiss us now in your fear and love for Jesus.